Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor. I'm here with Mark. How are you feeling, Mark? I feel like a, a TI-83 calculator that was exclusively used to play games. How are you feeling? Uh, you feel like my TI-83 calculator. Yeah. Um, I feel like a red wine reduction sauce, because that's what I just attempted for dinner. Okay. Things are getting fancier in the COVID times. Attempted, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. you know, it's like it, that used to be like, oh, no one has time for that. And now it's like, yeah, you actually do have time for that. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing a lot of cooking here, too. Absolutely. I mean, back to the whole TI-83 thing. What was that game that was on there? There was one game that like Block Dude. Block Dude, Dude was the one that everyone had, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Block Dude. Uh, but you could get snood. Yep. Yeah. You could make your... You could program your own games if you wanted to. <laughs> well, dude, that's like the one thing. The thing that I remember most about the TI-83 is that I was horrible at computer programming class. Like, fucking horrible. Did you take it? No. You I, I never took a programming class. Yeah. I took computer programming in the high school that we both went to, and it I it was the worst class. I actually it was like one of those things where it was like I did not get like horrible grades in school, but it was like I'm trying at this class, and the teacher gave me a D for like effort. Like you failed, <laughs> you failed, but you did you know because you like actually tried. So I was horrible at computer programming. But what I'll always remember about my TI-83 is that I had learned enough in programming. And, and realized that TI-83 had like a programming language in it, that there was one thing that I sucked at in math class. And it was, uh, I remember now, do you remember when it's two sides of the equation and there's two things missing? So like X and Y are missing and X and Y are missing on the other side. Sure. Yeah. And I don't even know. I don't remember what that's called. But I basically just sat down and instead of doing it right like multiple times, I did it right once into my TI-83 and programmed so it would just ask me what's X and what's Y like on one side or like what's this and what's that on one side and then it solved it. Nice. <laughs> and I was like, if that's not good enough for like the fucking test and I don't know what is. So I just <laughs> had that on my own program in there and I was like, no. Awesome. Yeah. Ace math and but then fail or get a D in computer program. <laughs> oh, I was getting I was getting C's in math too. I, I stopped I stopped taking math as soon as you were allowed to at our school. Oh man, I did so much math. Algebra even two, now. algebra two, <laughs> that was the end. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the TI eighty three. I had the silver TI eighty three silver plus. I, think I had a see through. I had a see through blue. Okay. If I remember yeah. correctly. The see through see through stuff was cool back in the day, like the N sixty four. Yep. And the Game Boy and all that. I like the see through stuff. Yeah, Game Boy Game Boy yeah. color. See <laughs> so so yeah, it's been a been a bit since we recorded. Um, it sure has. I saw a tweet recently though that was I'm gonna retweet it uh, at some point. But it was basically like your podcast is sold out if you have a scheduled release day. And you know what? I agree with that. Uh-oh. That's a sellout. That's a sellout move. You know, it's jump ready. on the bandwagon of. Uh, actually, <laughs> I think that I think that's actually if you want your podcast to be popular. <laughs> no, that's that's when you sell out. Sell out, total sell. Ours is we still have an indie. This is indie. Uh, it's like you know we well, we think about it. We have to wait four years for some of our favorite bands to put out new albums. You know that's just how it works. That's how it works. You got to tease out the good stuff. Yeah. The crappy. Anyways. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> so uh so today for the beginning part i wanted to discuss this essay i found on electricliterature.com aka electric lit yep it's a pretty cool site definitely throw up a, a link to that but the essay on on it is titled how playing mist taught me to write fiction the classic puzzle game and its sequel ribbon showed me the pleasures of immersion and suggestion and this is from blair hurley who is the author of the book the devoted mm -hmm. so mist yep. have you so played you said yeah you sent me this article i read the article but yes i have yeah do you remember it i have played mist and of course i remember it yeah it's a it's a famous early 90s computer game it's like a point and click mm -hmm. adventure you're moving like, you're moving through a 3d world but one photo at a time yeah yeah you're just kind of it's a slideshow of these for the their time like really detailed background images and yeah slideshow instead of fluid movement but um it definitely strains the computers of the time yes it did yeah. uh, but it's you know it's all these complicated puzzles and a story around this complicated story around being trapped in a book and then it, within that there's two brother two like rival brothers that are trapped in books that you're trying to help and stuff yeah see but, i i feel like yeah. i related to blair in this article because she basically talks about how when she first played it as a kid it was more like a fascinating world but then as an adult she revisited it and actually like learned the stories because i can tell you from my first experiences of mist which was my best friend ben's house he had mist and him and his dad would play it yeah and I didn't have a computer at my house that had it on it. It was just, um, it was, I just knew of Mist from them and, and they seemed so smart and cool with like figuring out all these puzzles and stuff. And I can tell you right off the bat that I never fully knew what was going on in Mist, but I know everything. Like I know it's legend in the gaming world and I've played it myself with like the whole, I know the whole vibe. Yeah, um, I was actually describing it before you ever even sent me this article. I was describing it to my wife, Daria, because I was like, she's just beginning to play some different video games. And I was like, maybe you should play Miss because it's like this whole like lost vibe. Wouldn't you say it has like lost vibes? It definitely it definitely has a lost vibe. It has that. You know, that 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 and lost and a couple other things are in that category of giving you the same kind of feeling. Right. It's like that something you can't quite grasp yeah it's like the it's a it's a genre in itself it's like this island puzzle mystery but it doesn't have to be on an island to have those vibes it's like very uh esoteric it's i don't even yeah. know it's just you just have to know it, I, I will say get it if you were there yeah playing it now is probably painfully slow though and i i actually i have it i own it for horror <laughs> for the Panasonic 3DO, which is like uh, what? <laughs> something I found at a tag sale for super cheap. It's like this video game console that didn't catch on. It's, it's, I don't know if it's like rare or not, but uh, it's like a early 90s CD playing console. It's pretty crazy. I have to look this up now. But yeah, I, I have missed for that. But anyways, so missed like it's all these complicated puzzles, like we said. And I, I want to read one part of the essay because it reminded me so much of my favorite nonsense book, The Third Policeman. Mm -hmm. And it describes just how, like, 
difficult and ridiculous it was. Uh, while Mist was solvable, given enough time and diligence, some of the puzzles in the sequel were outlandishly obscure. <laughs> An example, you had to find where a dome-shaped stone was located on each of five islands, then compare it to a hidden topographical map of the islands, then place colored marbles precisely on a 50 by 50 grid representing the domes. <laughs> spin a revolving chamber five times and nothing would happen, but spin it backwards once and you'd find a hidden door. Remember to extend a walkway while you were on the near side of a bridge because an hour later on another island, you wouldn't be able to make it back. Boil water in a chamber to make a floor panel rise, then drain the water, then lower the panel again, and you find a secret ladder. <laughs> Colors were linked with animals in an exact order. Doors hid other doors. Throwing a hidden switch would result in turning off a fan you encountered hours later, enabling you to climb through an air duct. If you pushed a button that appeared to do nothing at the very beginning of the game, you'd be able to finish. If you pushed it fruitlessly an even number of times, it would do nothing at the end, and you'd be unable to win. Damn. Rotating chambers with shifting <laughs> doorways and locked prisons with sound pattern codes confounded my 10-year-old brain. I never finished the game on my own power. I had to resort to cycling through the few intriguing zones I could reach, somehow soothed by the realistic lapping water and the cranks and pulleys and levers I could turn off and on again, not knowing their effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that passage in itself almost sounds, you know, I, I, honestly, from you sending me this article, I actually added Blair's book to my Amazon cart. Nice. But just that like first paragraph that you read, it's like I, I can accept that as a paragraph in a book, like somebody talking about Riven, like it was it was even well written, like it did sound like the third policeman. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of like it sounded like a purgatorial video game, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's that, been my experience with that game too. It's like the I could never make it anywhere <laughs> i think that i think you just hit the nail on the head of what the genre is though it's purgatorial that's yeah. what lost is. lost is like this idea of like where are they and where am i it's stranger in a strange land it's yeah, that yeah. it's that vibe um which also honestly is a little bit like dark tower is a little bit like that maybe the first one yeah yeah there's there's some shared kind of feelings there mm -hmm. but um that's that's cool though. Yeah, you should probably should check out uh, uh, some of Blair's work. Yeah, but, well, her first novel is called The Devoted, and honestly, what pushed me over the edge—not only this article, but what also pushed me over the edge to add her to my Amazon cart—is uh, one of the quotes on her website is from is praising her first book from Joyce Carol Oates. So, oh, cool. You know, she's uh, she's not effing around. Yeah. So, um, but the, the question that came to my mind from this more like, you know, an excuse to talk about some more video games, like ha has any game, I mean, cause we're not like uh, authors like this. It's not like, Oh, I got inspiration for, mm -hmm. you know, but has any game ever given you the same feeling as a great book would like that, you know, completely immersive experience mm -hmm. or maybe well, just yeah. a game with like exceptionally good writing in your opinion. Well, yeah, I could say that I actually say all the time um, to anyone who will listen that the the first PlayStation one Metal Gear Solid game, I would not be where I like where I am in my career and like what and who I am as a person without Metal Gear Solid, the first one. Yeah, um, it, it like it totally 
I can trace like a direct line back to like, okay, like maybe I should go to film school. Maybe I should follow my dreams. Maybe I should like do like all this shit because of the adventures of solid stake in, in, <laughs> in metal gear solid for sure. For sure. Cool. And why like, is I would that? Be, he's I would not be like shaking, a, he's I would be shaking, not a creative. Like, I mean, he's not a creative, but I would, <laughs> where, yeah, I think, where, where's I, that the, connection there? It's the idea of like, that was something that was so good that, I searched beyond it. Like, I don't just know, like, oh, I love that video game. I know who wrote and created it is Hideo Kojima. Like, yeah. you know, like that kind of thing where it's like you listen to something and it's like, I think you could say the same thing about like a lot of people will listen to, you know, Ozzy Osbourne or Black Sabbath. And then all of a sudden it's like, but then I know who Randy Rose, his guitarist is, or yeah. Tony, Tony Iommi, who was the guitarist of Black Sabbath. It's like that one step further. Yeah, yeah. So that's what Metal Gear Solid would be. But what about you? Influence that's true. And yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I'm sure it continued with all of the other Kojima stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, to this I day. was just thinking, I, I don't think I've had any game that affected me in, the sa- in that same way, maybe. But there's stuff that I've gotten obsessed with because of like how cool, like how well constructed I thought it was and stuff. I was just thinking recently, just like one that I got immersed in, I guess. Uh, like a year or so ago was uh have you heard of near automata that like kind of kind of recent game no near i okay. may have seen like screenshots or something yeah yeah you might have but like it's just about a, a war in the distant future between like androids and machine aliens or whatever or machine okay. robot aliens but like it sounds super fantastical and everything but the writing in it was was really good i thought Damn. Uh, and like the story, this game out. the story was cool. Yeah, it, it won a lot of awards. It's a really good game. Um, and then the other stuff that I would say maybe affected me in that sort of way, not to the same extent, but uh, a trio of Super Nintendo RPGs, and I bet you could name a few of them. Uh, just as I say that, but uh, mm, yeah, I think Chrono, I know. Chrono Trigger. <laughs> Yeah. Chrono Trigger, of course, um, that's got a cool layered story. I feel like they like worked on the story before they did anything with the game, which it just like comes across that way. Uh, it's multiple like timelines and stuff, and I like that a lot. Uh, Earthbound, as far yeah. as like comedy and you know not being serious, or whatever. It's the sort of game that I go around talking to every. <laughs> and he's NPC because they got some small joke to tell you, or there's some like little connection or something. And I think I remember. I I know your love of Earthbound, and I think I remember when I was lucky enough to visit uh, Japan. I texted you a picture of because uh, the game is called Mother, right? Or Mother Two? Yeah, it's Mother. Well, Earthbound is Mother Two. Yeah. Yeah, Earthbound. And I didn't. I texted you a picture of the cartridge from like a video game store in Japan. I think. Yeah. Yeah. If I didn't, I can send it to you. <laughs> no, I still have it. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's awesome. That guy. Um. Uh, if I mess up his name now. Etoy. Uh, Etoy. Yeah, see what uh, I'm saying is like but, you went one step beyond. Yeah, he has a super popular blog actually. Ooh. He's a good writer. Uh, he's like he's well known in Japan and not for Earthbound, <laughs> more oh, for cool. like him as a as a uh, celebrity. But cool. and then the third game I was thinking of was uh, one you might not have played, but you should. It's called Terra Enigma. 
right. like, uh, up, like the obscure earth enigma kind of thing but it's another super nintendo rpg it wasn't released stateside so that's why you might not know about it but i played like the rom or whatever but it's got a really cool story about resurrecting like a dead earth piece by piece kind of like that's your uh that's your journey but that that has some cool writing in it too i would say nice and yeah i don't know it's it's hard to say like like this article, you know, it's about. Well, I think it's also interesting that we are definitely we're already past the era of people being influenced by video games. I mean, like any any person who's writing novels past like 1995 is probably like somehow influenced by some sort of gaming culture, either rejecting it or accepting it. Yeah. Um, and it's starting to come out more and more like there's a plot line in that book, The Knicks. Um, which one of us might cover someday where he's like, like one of the characters is like addicted to world of Warcraft. It, he doesn't yeah. <laughs> call it world of Warcraft. He calls it like, you know, like an MMO RPG or whatever, Yeah. but it's basically world of Warcraft. And, and I think it will, you know, it'll come to fruition more and more that, that that's yeah. kind of like, it's like a genre of art that you wouldn't really ignore if you were as, as we're kind of like, you know, developing. Aren't there some crazy video game references in Bleeding Edge by Pynchon? There are. There are, there are references to who I was just talking about, Hideo Kojima, who created That's Dark what it is. Solid. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, he talks about Vegeta in that yeah, too. Yeah, he talks about Dragon Ball Z <laughs> and like all this shit. And the, like, yeah, it's like a it's like a two page like stretch where you're like, oh my god, I love Pynchon even more now. He's like <laughs> playing fucking Metal Gear Solid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he talked about that in Bleeding Edge. Also a really good book. Probably underappreciated in a way. I've read Bleeding Edge, and it's really fucking good. Underappreciated by me because I haven't finished it. Ooh. Yeah, I'll have to check it out again. You should dive back into it. It's got, like, healing from 9-11 vibes kind of stuff. Interesting. Okay. Cool. Uh, Well, I think... We figured out that I'm going first. Yeah. Um, I gotta say, like, I'm not like I'm not nervous for my thing this week, but my like coverage this week is unique. It's something that's never been done on this podcast before. Okay. Um, my coverage uh, this week is well, this week on this episode that we don't yeah. do weekly because uh, we're too cool for that. Um, my coverage this week is actually three different books. Um, but the first thing that I'll ask you is please tell me your most significant emotional reaction to a book. Your most significant. Uh, hmm. Putting you on the spot. Should have texted. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, Emotional. Well, I think we talked about this before. I, I don't think I've ever uh, cried from a book. Right. I would say it's either fear from some early Stephen King as a kid or maybe shock with maybe The Count of Monte Cristo or with uh, Johnny Got His Gun with just mm-hmm. how how bad a circumstance can get <laughs> or, or how, you know, Monte, Count of Monte Cristo builds up so much that like it's some jaw dropping moments in there. So that maybe, maybe that's what it is. Like, yeah. I think it's more shock or fear. I definitely do recall 
literal jaw drops during the Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. And actually, recently I was in a bookstore of all places. We actually found a bookstore near me that is still COVID safe open, which is really cool. Nice. Um, and I was at the bookstore recently and I saw an abridged version of the Count of Monte Cristo that was only like 250 pages and it made me sick. <laughs> I was like, I wanted to rip it off the shelf. <laughs> Who who reads an abridged version of the Count of Monte Cristo? That's still long for like you still, know, abridged. That's sickening. What did they take <laughs> out? What did that person go through when they were just like 800 pages gone? <laughs> he probably like he like falls off the cliff like from the prison and then he's like and revenge number one. <laughs> like yeah, he washes fuck? up. So, yeah, that's a little excessive. It was excessive. I was disgusted. Uh, don't read a bridge books, people. Okay. Well, the reason why I asked you that question is because my coverage this week is kind of like a little bit of a therapy session. Um, I am not currently seeing a therapist, but I have in my life many times. So anybody out there who is feeling like, should I or should I not see a therapist or whatever, if you're on the verge of first doing it, definitely recommend it. Um, but what my coverage this week is related to, and it's funny that you just said, you know, you have like an unfinished pension book. Um, I now have three books under my belt that are unfinished for extremely personal reasons. Not really. Ex- I wouldn't say extremely personal since I'm talking about them on a public podcast. Um, but the most recent was the one that I was attempting to cover for the podcast most recently. And I don't think I'm going to finish it. Um, so I have three unfinished books that I'd like to talk to you about and the stories connected to them are like a bit of a therapy session because these are three books, um, that I probably won't ever finish. Maybe I will someday when I'm in like a very secure (laughs) location, but these are three books that I was actively reading while I just, while I experienced a panic attack. Okay. Was one, Um, one, so one was recent? One was recent. I wouldn't say I had a full panic attack with the most recent one, but I was getting these vibes where if I thought about the book too much, I would get super fucking nervous and I like couldn't handle it. Um, so let's talk about these three books. Okay. Um, the first book, and it was the first panic attack I've ever had in my life in my mid-20s, which, you, which if you study human psychology at all, is a common time for people's um, kind of mental uh, – you know, stresses to come out is like between your like mid to early twenties is usually when like really weird stuff happens. Like you get diagnosed with schizophrenia or yeah, stuff, stuff catches up with you in your, in your twenties, your mid twenties. And uh, the first book that I was reading, I was reading on a New York subway uh, train. I was living in New York at the time. I was living, I was uh, on the way home from work on the subway and I was reading a book called the interestings by Meg Wolitzer published in 2013 have you ever heard of this book no it's a super good book i'm ashamed to say that obviously i haven't finished it because that's how i started my coverage this week um but the interestings by meg wolitzer is super awesome book about all of these artsy kids who meet at an art oriented summer camp so basically think of like a summer camp that um you go there because you're like the art kid in your school yeah 
And they all meet there and it's like kind of like an extrapolation of everything that happens in their lives kind of after they don themselves as the interestings. Like we're so cool that we're going to be the interestings. That's our group of friends. And one of them goes on to become like sort of like a South Park creator type animator. Another one becomes like a famous painter or whatever. And it's all about this girl kind of struggling with her artistic identity and about jealousy and stuff like that. Anybody who has taken art seriously as like a, a career, like if you went to film school like I did or art something, something that where you took it to the next level as an artist, The Interestings is an amazing book. You won't have a panic attack like I did. Um, but yeah, I was reading this on a New York subway. There was a scene where two of the characters are sharing needles, <laughs> uh, like, her- like heroin style. Yeah. And, uh, something, it's always something that like anxiety and kind of like panic attacks are a very interesting thing where something kind of just worms its way, like all the way into your consciousness where you take it like extremely seriously for no reason. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened when I was reading this scene where I was just like thinking about them using the needle and then passing it and using it. And I was just like, it like fucked me up. And I started getting really fucking woozy. I got off the subway. I like fucking could, I was like half conscious. It was fucking scary. Um, so I sat down on a subway bench and just kind of collected myself. And then I was like, I've, I've never read the book since then. <laughs> it's yeah. actually, it's at my collection in my grandpa's house. Uh, like okay. I was wondering if it's like, you, do you keep it nearby? I'm like, I no, I have. It okay. Yeah. Keep here. it. It might not be here with me in LA, but it's definitely at my grandpa's house. Okay. Um, so I'm keeping it around for that one day where I can pick it back up. And to be honest, what's what's ironic about these books is that I will definitely be able to pick up exactly where I left off because it's such a significant memory. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was my first book that I was. And what's weird about this is that it's kind of like a hard thing to discuss now that I'm going. It's not so hard, but it's kind of a hard thing to discuss because what's interesting is like, do I have panic? At, like, have I had these significant panic attacks because I was reading or do I read so much that this is just when they were happening? <laughs> yeah. That's like yeah. one thing where it's like, it actually is like a battle with me of like, like why have I always had like these like extremely rare moments of panic while reading, but I'm going to chalk it up to it being that I read a lot. Not that yeah. it was just happening because I was reading. Um, so that's the first book that I'm covering. I want to go fast through these books because each one has a story and, and each one, you know, has this craziness, this feeling that I want to kind of analyze. Okay. Yeah, no, I like this style. Yeah. This is is new. (laughs) This is new. Um, So my next book that I'm going to talk about, I was reading when I lived in London. I had just started reading this book. I don't think I got, I I only think I got maybe two or three pages in. And then I had a panic attack, which is kind of crazy. Were you on the Uh, tube? No, I was not on the tube. Okay, I'm trying to find a correlation yeah. here. Well, there might be a correlation when we get to the end. There's okay. definitely a correlation when we get to the end. Um, so this is an author that you know, um, that you introduced to me, although I swear it's not your fault. Um, <laughs> this is uh, the semi-fictional autobiographical novel by Tom Robbins called Tibetan Peach Pie. Do you own this book? Uh, that's one of the few of his I have not read. Right. So we're obviously very aware of Tom Robbins. Have you covered? I think you've covered him. 
Yeah. Yep. I did. Uh, still life. Still life. Woodpecker. Yeah. Yep. Still woodpecker. Um, another amazing novel of his is Skinny Legs and All. Like yep. so amazing. He's an incredible writer. Uh, Actually, was, taking that back. So I did not introduce this. I did not introduce Tom Robbins to you. It's the other way around because of Skinny Legs and All. That's where oh, it all it's started. My, it's my. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay, so it's my fault. I'm not going to blame you. Um, so Tibetan Peach Pie, what happened to me when I was reading Tibetan Peach Pie? This is probably the darkest one. This is the most major panic attack I've ever had in my life. Uh, sorry to get it like to a little bit of a heavy place, but I think that we should go there for people who are maybe our listeners and kind of could be struggling with anxiety or struggling with depression or anything like that. Um, these are mostly anxious feelings, by the way. These are not really uh, super depressive feelings. But when I first started reading Tibetan Peach Pie, I had recently left my job. Um, when I was living in London, I was working in a corporate job. And this is – some people close to me know this. I don't know if, Mark, you even know this. But I was getting through my job in London and living my corporate job by smoking weed to cope. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, like, basically, you know, I was just, like, pretty much high, like – 30% of every day, definitely during my morning commute and kind of just like living through life and kind of like pushing through this corporate job that I didn't really want to exist in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had been that way for years. Like, honestly, like people, I came out of film school, went straight to a corporate job and it was like sort of not always a great fit, but you know, we do lots of things because of our student loans. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> we do lots and lots of things because of our student loans. I'm sure it's very healthy for all of us. And um, so I worked that job for eight years. And actually, this was this event that I'm about to talk about was kind of like the end of everything where it was like, okay, I had recently left my job before this panic attack. So basically, you could chalk it up to, you know, if I was smoking a ton or if I was stressed out, but you could also just talk it up, I think, to like quarter life crisis, you know, like, I had just left this job, and I had no idea what the fuck was going to happen to me. Like, because I had been like sucking on the corporate teat for eight years when I had, when I decided like my passion is my life, I'm going to, you know, discover myself somewhere else, like blah, blah, blah. And I quit my job. It was like scary, you know, it oh, was yeah, like a big move. And like, you're, you're only... a person that I like associate with big moves too. <laughs> you know, you've okay. been, you've done <laughs> yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. New York to London to LA and whatever and blah, blah. blah. So what was happening here was a huge deal because my only paychecks in my adult life had come from like this, you know, daddy of a company, you know, where I was just like, okay, like I, I literally don't even know how to make money past what I just told my boss and quit and everything. So yeah. maybe chalk it up to that. That was brewing in the back of my mind. Um, I obviously like one morning I smoked like a shitload of weed like every day in London because that's what I was fucking doing. And uh, then I went to one of my fa- I walked to one of my favorite cafes. I had Tibetan peach pie in my book bag. And then I sat down at this cafe. I started reading Tibetan peach pie. And there was a scene right in the beginning of the book. If you ever read this book, you know, let me know anyone out there and including you, Mark. There's a scene right in the beginning of the book where Tom Robbins talks about how he burned himself really badly on his back when he was a kid. Oh, okay. Like like his back. I don't even remember if it was a sunburn or some sort of other injury, like due to actual fire or anything like that. But I was sitting there in this cafe waiting for my order. It was a super fucking hot day. So maybe you could chalk it up to that too. 
that's what you do with anxiety is you assign all these different reasons for why something happened to you. Yeah, you're dehydrated. <laughs> yeah, maybe it was, you know, something all, you know, different entirely. Um, and you hold on to those things, which is which is mm-hmm. not great. But if you analyze them, you can realize that you are holding on to them. Uh, it was one of the hottest days in London. It was like super middle of the summer. Um, and he's talking about how he burned his back or whatever. And then he starts talking about how like his the back, the like meat of his back was literally just meat. And again, it's like that thing where it like snaked like right into the center of my brain where I was like, anything can happen to you. Like you could be walking down the street and just get like hit by a car, like, you know, all this shit that was probably building up for my work stress and, you know, having left this major career in my life. And I was yeah, also, the security of that. Yeah. And I was also high. So let's not forget that. So. I kind of walked out of the cafe and I was already feeling woozy. And then I face planted into the street, got three stitches in my eyebrow. I woke up with a cop's with my head in a cop's hands. And I basically just face planted into the sidewalk in, in Greenwich, London. Yeah. Um, my now wife, Daria, came to visit me in the hospital. And it was just like one of the most fucked up days of my life where I was like, OK, like my anxiety and, and like anxiety comes in waves. So it was like. Before that, it was like, my anxiety is over, you know, like it hasn't happened to me in so long. And especially, honestly, especially because I was also like, I smoke all the time and like, I'm fine, you know, like that kind of shit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe sometimes with anxiety, this is my own kind of personal pin in marijuana, but I think maybe it kind of pushes it to the side until it builds up and then you faint in the street. Um, But that's my own thing to deal with, with intoxicants. Um. So that's what happened with Tibetan peach pie. I literally read three pages. Uh, the the imagery was so vivid. Tom Robbins is such a good writer that it snaked right into my anxiety brain, and I face planted in the street. Haven't read it since. <laughs> yeah, I would say you don't have to finish that one. <laughs> yeah, we'll think. Well, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Um, and then the third in this epic trilogy, that was the darkest one. So we can breathe a sigh of relief. And actually, from that day, I've done a lot of analysis, both with professionals and with myself. Uh, I stopped smoking for anyone out there who is curious. I'm not super against marijuana, but it's not the right thing for me. Uh, so I stopped smoking after that event, which was probably really beneficial. Sometimes I guess you need to faint in the street. Um, so that's... You know, that's like the second one. And then the third one that I want to get into was the one that I it was a book that I was currently reading. And when I started reading this book in the past few weeks, you're going to see that like cohesive theme uh, that kind of ties it together a little bit with the interestings and what happened to me in the first uh, in my first major panic attack. But when I was reading this book, I didn't have a panic attack recently. I'm fine. But. When I started reading it, I recognized those feelings and I was like, fuck this. I can't. I can't do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, gave up on it for that. I, I understand that. Gave on it for because I now have a, an identifiable sort of reaction. Um, so the third book that I'm talking about this week is something that I found in that bookstore when I was when I went to that COVID safe bookstore. And um, I've been looking for this book physically for years. I actually do think at one point I am going to finish this book. It wasn't super bad, um, but it was giving me some weird vibes. I do want to finish it, but I finally found a physical copy of Murakami's book called Underground, The Tokyo Gas Attack and the Japanese Psyche. Have you heard of this book? 
No, that's is that's a nonfiction book by him or what Murakami, is it? Murakami has written two nonfiction books. One is about marathon running, and the other yeah, the running is, one. I know yeah, that one. The other one is called Underground, which is the book I'm talking about right now. Okay. So in 1995, and this book was originally published in Japanese in 1997. It was only translated to English in 2003. But in 1995, in the Tokyo subway system, a fucked up religious cult released sarin gas packets into the subway cars and fucked up a bunch of people. They killed like a few subway employees who like cleaned up the like basically like liquid packets that were filled with sarin gas, which was fucking invented by like Nazis to kill people. Um, And it was just this like totally fucked up event. But what is so amazing about this book, probably the best of the three books that I'm talking about today. And I and, you know, I'm I'm sad to say that it was giving me those weird vibes where I just even if I thought about it too much, I would start getting nervous. I was talking about it with my wife and I was like, we need to stop talking about this book because I'm fucking getting like like I was getting like waves in my brain and stuff like that of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's amazing about this book is that to me. This book cements more than anything Murakami's genius. Um, there's a trend. You know that I like true crime. You're not a big fan of true crime. Yeah, it's not my thing, but I do. I, know, I understand the appeal. Yeah, but I there's a trend in true crime pretty recently because it's be, become so popular. You know, like one of the number one genres in podcasting, one of the number one genres in books and stuff like that. There's a theme in true crime that people have started to recognize that it's sort of fucked up that people worship murderers. And in the sense that, like, when you read about the Zodiac killer, you read more about the killer than the victims, which is fucked Oh, yeah. And that that's the case with everything, yeah. That's the case with everything, which is really fucked up. And the reason why I say that this book to me cements Murakami's genius is because in 1995, and he wrote this book in 1996, and then it was published a year later, like one year after the gas attack, he gives you tiny details about what you need to know about the criminals that released this sarin gas. But the entire 250-page book is him transcribing his interviews with the victims and then arranging it like a masterful DJ that like brings it from song to song and person to person that tells the story fucking perfectly. And it's all through the victim's eyes. So this book is like absolutely incredible. Like he'll start out, he starts out with this one interview and it's like this woman, you know, talking about what happened to her. How do you feel about the perpetrators of the crime? Like all these things. And then the next interview that he does will have like one connecting detail about what that next thing was. And then it keeps going and it's just basically based off of his transcribed interviews with over 60 or 70 people who were victims that day. But by the way, there was, hundreds of victims but he could only get certain people to quote. yeah well i didn't know he was such like a journalist kind of he's then. not he's not like since then since like for the longest time he's only written nonfiction. but like that's what i'm saying like it's it's that whole like idea of you know like uh you know mozart versus salieri like anything that this guy's touches gold you know yeah like it, it's like absolutely ridiculous. Like if he ever writes any other nonfiction, I would jump on it just as fast as his fiction. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I started reading this book. I'm probably like one third of the way through it. I don't know if I'll continue because I already started something else because this was giving me like really weird vibes. But I do think, you know, oddly it is connected to like I had that panic attack in the subway system and then I'm just reading over and over about people's like cloudy vision in, in the subway systems of Tokyo and like it was really crowded and it was really hot and you know, yeah. like and like you know, people were like literally like foaming at the mouth, fainting and shit like that. And it's just like this is too fucking much for me right now um but yeah i mean those are the three books i think all three of those books are fucking brilliant i would say the king of all of them is definitely underground by murakami it's fucking incredible i do hope to finish it one day but i put the pause on it because uh, for obvious reasons so uh if you're out there reading you start to feel weird know that you're not alone yeah not to psychoanalyze i guess but maybe i'll do dabble in that a little bit the only theme Please. I'm picking up is that they all seem like way too extremely realistic violence instead of like the no, yeah. stuff. And yeah, it's, it's not like it's not like Battle Royale where you're. Really yeah, like, yeah. Oh, he got his head shot off. It's like that. Like, it's so realistic and it just like snakes like right into my brain. Yeah, because I'm thinking about like movies and stuff that you like, like. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Tetsuo the Iron Man. <laughs> Violent movies. Tetsuo the Iron Man was super fucked up, but, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting that the connection, the the connections, good and bad, that we can have to, to books like that. Like, I, I got to think more about it because I know there, there have been, I know there are books in my life that I've like linked to like darker feelings like that and mm. i need to just think about it more i think uh yeah uh, i guess I, I could have when i was on the spot a little bit but. i could have preempted you but then it also probably would have ruined it yeah but. no worries about that i will come <laughs> back i will come back later with uh with those but yeah these are these are books that i have talked about in therapy sessions and uh you know the whole nine yards so you know sometimes reading gets too real yeah so, all right that was really good thank you thank you for sharing all of that <laughs> yeah that was my idea once i couldn't finish once i knew i couldn't finish underground i was like you know what i probably need to air some fucking dirty laundry about these three books that are haunting me there you go yeah now you'll be able to uh let them go <laughs> yeah exactly all right so ready for the second half i'm ready for the second half all right, I'm going to start start with two questions, just real basic questions. Yeah. Uh, who who went up the hill with Jill? Jack. And what city did you live in before L.A.? London. Okay. Jack London, baby. Yeah. What if uh, I know you've talked about the Assassinations Bureau before, right? Yeah. Is that Jack, that's Jack London. Number yeah. one Jack London book, Assassination Bureau. So I haven't read that. I've read Call of the Wild. I've read White Fang. I've read, you know, to, to Start a Fire or whatever that, uh, you know, other short stories and all the uh, kind of the themed work of his, like a, like a, you know, mm-hmm. the n- nature kind of stuff. But I read something different this week from him, and you know, he's part of that group of early American authors, uh, like Hemingway and Twain, that just lived so fast and did so much in so little time mm-hmm. like 
remember when I covered the Twain memoir about the uh, the gold rush kind of thing and all those little stories he had and all that. Yep. Uh, before he even really started his life, like <laughs> exactly. I read, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this week I read something similar. Uh, it's a memoir, same kind of style, uh, from Jack London, and it's mm-hmm. from the era of his life when he was a hobo. Nice. And it's called The Road. Nice. It's from 1907. Probably a lot cooler than the Cormac McCarthy book of the same name. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> and it that's a decent book, but yeah. Uh, it, it's from 1907. You know, it talks about his life in the 1890s when he was hopping, hopping trains, begging for food, uh, evading the police, and then, you know, failing at evading the police. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not your typical Jack London tale. But it was really interesting in its own right, and it does seem to influence his later work, especially the kind of theme of like surviving the wilderness or surviving the elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's crazy to think about. He was, you know, this is him as a teenage hobo. Yeah, because he became one of the most successful. He ended up, you know, becoming one of the most successful authors of the early 1900s. Like he was a celebrity. He was rich because of his work and everything. But you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at his Wikipedia page, and it's like he died when he was 40. Yeah, yeah, hold on. So, <laughs> hold, no, hold, hold up, hold on up. <laughs> when, when I, yeah, when I say he lived so fast and did so much, just listen to this here. Born in 1876, uh, 1889 when he was 13, worked 12 to 18 hours a day at a cannery in San Francisco. Uh, he bought a boat called the Razzle Dazzle, became an oyster pirate, whatever that means. <laughs> He crashed that boat, joined a seal hunting like uh, boat, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, seal hunting team, I guess, sailed to Japan and back. Uh, and then, as you know, still when he was like 16, traveled the whole country pretty much via train, which is the detail, which is, you know, what this book is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he went to high school <laughs> at 17. <laughs> Uh, and UC Berkeley for like a, a year or something. He didn't graduate, but he went to college for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, then he went out to the, uh, he hit up the Klondike gold rush uh, up in the Yukon territory of Canada at 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, then he had a family, made a bunch of books, and then died at 40. God damn. Just a um, really wild life. I feel like maybe, maybe. I'm getting like a tiny drop, like the the amount of time that we've spent in this like quarantine with the whole pandemic is like I can understand maybe one tenth of a percent of how people were living and like doing more when they were like less like more limited with information kind of. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like to actually like maybe I can understand how someone could live so much in such like a short amount of time with the idea that like back then it was like, if you're sitting in your house and doing nothing, you're like literally doing nothing. Like you're not checking out a TV show or like anything like that. Like it's like you have to do something or you're doing nothing. Yeah. I mean, all you could do is read or if you had a hobby. Yeah. Crafts and making stuff and but yeah, I still can't understand a life like that. Like, so yeah. Crazy. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, during this period of the 1890s, what he basically did was, uh, like, uh, 
like another pension reference in V, he was like yo-yoing on freight trains all across the country. And this book is largely about the, you know, the mind state that he was in during this time and how he would need to kind of change his identity and, you know, make up stories when he was begging for food or, you know, things like that to try, trying to be, uh, trying to avoid being charged for vagrancy. And this is an era of, it was basically the Great Depression before the Great Depression. It was called the, uh, right after the panic of 1893. Mm -hmm. uh, massive, like the worst economic depression that had existed so far in the, in the country. So, you know, London was not alone as, uh, you know, being a homeless, like wanderer kind of, or wayfarer or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, there was a whole community and, there are some cool stories in this book about the about that kind of homeless community and just making something out of the nothing that they had, how they would share resources and stories with each other. And it probably helped him develop his storytelling skills like this experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, one of the more interesting sections about it talks about something called Kelly's Army. Kelly's Army. Yeah. And so... Uh, there's a Wikipedia article on it. It's a, Kelly's army was a, a piece of uh, what co was called Coxie's army, which was a, a massive protest march of of like the unemployed led by this politician named Jacob uh, Coxie. And it was actually the first organized march on uh, Washington, D.C. And it was like 6,000 people like stormed the Capitol. And um, but anyways, you know, London, like Jack London, he he wrote about it because he he kind of joined up with Kelly's army for a bit, which was like just one piece of this bigger army. I think it was like 500 or so people. He uh, he met up with them, I think, in Wyoming or Iowa or something and went like kind of hitched along with them uh, on their way east. And I think they. They're they only made it as far as the Mississippi, but still like, um, I think they were like thwarted by the, uh, railroad companies kind of catching on to their whole thing hmm. of like hopping on trains and all that. Right. But it was, it's a really cool, it made me, you know, do a little bit more looking, look more into that, uh, kind of organized March and everything. That, that was pretty interesting that, you know, he just kind of, it's someone someone like that, like Jack London, he seems to just be a part of all the these things that were happening back then. Mm -hmm. It's just like by I, chance. It's like what I talked about with like Joan Didion. Yeah, to just be like, like in the center of things for no reason. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's, there's some cool stories in here. It talks a lot about like his method, his methods for hitching a ride on trains and stuff, and that there's a crazy part in it where he talks about like how I, I couldn't tell exactly what he meant um, just logistically, but he seemed to say that you could hang on to like the bottom, like the underneath, like be riding under the train. Yeah. Ride like that for a ways. And he said what, what like the, uh, the people would do to try and get, get, you know, uh, hitchhikers or whatever off the train is like they would have something some kind of weight on a string and they would put it underneath they would like feed it underneath while the train was moving and 
basically it would just be slapping up and down and just, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it would just be like being hitting the railroad ties and just being like hitting the ground and then the train and then, you know, oh going crazy like that. And that's how they would like knock people off and God. <laughs> uh, like, a lot of people that way. Oh my God. Did yeah, he specifically yeah. say that they killed people that way? Uh, yeah, yeah. He pretty much said that that you know. Oh my God! It's like that, in 2020 that, that would be back like in 2020 that would be like an investigated crime. Yeah. <laughs> like like this baker was under the train and you killed him with a weight. Yeah, stuff like that, and uh, he uses a lot of like old terms that uh, they're old like slang and stuff. And um, a lot of this book will make you mad though, just because partly because of how different things were. And then also partly because of how little things are changed. Like he's taken in by cops in uh, Niagara Falls, like just for walking around, walking around the street uh, and being identified, I guess, as a vagrant. And then he talks about facing like a trial, a quote unquote trial for his crime of vagrancy that lasts like about three seconds. <laughs> and, does not allow any input from himself for it to be able to, you know, defend himself in any way. And then, um, like a 30 day prison sentence he has, uh, up near Niagara Falls, which, uh, is pretty brutal. And it kind of goes into this whole hierarchy of the uh, prison system back then. Uh, I just want to read, I want to read a real quick section of the book because it's public domain. I can technically read the whole book. But uh, let me find this one part I was thinking of. One second. Okay. At six, I quit work and headed for the railroad yards, expecting to pick up something to eat on the way. But my hard luck was still with me. I was refused food at house after house. Then I got a handout. My spirit soared, for it was the largest handout I had ever seen in a long and varied experience. It was a parcel wrapped in newspapers and as big as a mature suitcase. I hurried to a vacant lot and opened it. First, I saw cake, then more cake, all kinds of makes of cake, and then some. It was all cake, no bread and butter with thick, firm slices of meat between, nothing but cake. And I, who of all things abhorred cake most, in another age and climb, they sat down by the waters of Babylon and wept. And in a vacant lot in Canada's proud capital, I too sat down and wept over a mountain of cake. As one <laughs> looks upon the face of his dead son, so looked I upon that multitudinous pastry. I suppose I was an ungrateful tramp, for I refused to partake of the bounteousness of the house that had had a party the night before. Evidently, the guests hadn't liked cake either. Wow. <laughs> that's a, that's awesome imagery. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's such a good storyteller. Because um, you know, you know, I really, I really liked um, Call of the Wild and, and uh, White Fang were two books. Uh, you know, those were formative books for me. I would say, uh, as far as just getting me interested in reading. And you know, he he is definitely very talented. And I do think that this kind of experience in his life is, uh, you know, made him a better writer, probably. Yeah. So, uh, I have a one star review here from a user called Henrik on Goodreads. Uh, but the review was in Norwegian, so I use Google Translate on nice. this. One. So the review goes 
This kind of description of actual events, almost a descriptive diary form, is quite tedious. There will be too much cheering and self-praise, too little dwelling on people and thoughts. And I kind of agree with that. There, It is like, you know, this happened and this happened and this happened. But there are a lot of little moments, like I just kind of talked about with Cake, where it's like <laughs> his, his little escapades of avoiding police and tricking people on the train and stuff. and um, you know, little games they would play to stay sane when they were uh, camped out and stuff is, you know, it was, it was Ooh, that, what are they, that made what it. What do they play? Read. What do they play? Oh, I forget. They, I think they had some sort of card game where like the loser had to go fetch water for everyone, and uh, they kept playing it over and over again. And this guy kept losing, and it was like. The thing was like it was as much water as you could drink. You had to like go down this slope and scoop mm-hmm. up whatever in like an old milk can because that's all they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the guy lost like thirty times over or whatever, and <laughs> and he finally won. And then he ends up like drinking more than anyone could possibly ever drink because he was so happy that he finally won. <laughs> <laughs> and he made the loser like go up and down a million times. Nice. I forget what kind of card game they were playing though. But yeah, uh, pretty interesting read. I, I, the last few books I've read and my reading for the last few months, I feel like I'm kind of been stuck with the the Kindle, with uh-huh. the e-reader, just because the time I like to read is at night, and now I'm mm-hmm. dealing with you know, baby and baby, yeah. everything. So I gotta kind of keep the lights quiet, dim, and hey, that's cool. Kindle, you can read super fucking fast. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's where I've been at. I'm trying to get back to the paper books because I just got a whole bunch of them mm-hmm. uh, as a gift. So yeah, I got a lot of stuff. Uh, got a little a lot of stuff to read. I got my next like 30 episodes planned out probably. Nice. But you know how that works. That's the best laid plans or whatever. Best but, laid plans, absolutely. Yeah. We'll see. Sick. Well, that sounds really good. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and uh, yeah, it's free, that too. So, well, oh, it's free. Yeah, well, it's all uh, it's all on Kindle. Public public domain stuff. That's Whoa. that's what this Jack London stuff was. Yeah, that's awesome. Or you could get it on Project Gutenberg or any of those places that has all the public domain. Actually, we should. Uh, that'll be a future episode in January when they release the next public domain batch from. Oh, yeah. uh, but. 1920 <laughs> yeah or 1921 we'll see yeah cover that but um dude i could go on and on about how it's bullshit that we don't have mickey mouse's public domain but that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole other episode about the evil disney yeah that's lame yeah anyways uh thanks for listening everybody this has been another episode of shitty book reports you can find us on spotify soundcloud stitcher itunes instagram and twitter at SBR the podcast. You can also email us at SBR the podcast at gmail.com. Give us your comments, suggestions, corrections, whatever you're feeling. Um, see you next time. And oh, if our podcast happened to make your Spotify 2020 wrap up list, uh, let us know. That would be yeah, cool. Let us know. <laughs> I think it was top three on mine. Oh, damn. <laughs> All right. Uh, see you next time. Mm-hmm.